0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and Education Specialist, Patty Scalzo, and this is N.P. Pulse, the voice of the Nurse Practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back often for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm excited to announce that NP Pulse podcast listeners may claim CE credit for this program through February 2025 by visiting aanp.org cecenter, selecting this activity, entering the participation code provided at the end of this podcast, and then completing the post-test and evaluation. Rare Disease Day takes place on the last day of February every year. Over 300 million people in the world are living with a rare disease. Here in the United States, more than 30 million people are affected by over 7,000 rare diseases. This equates to about 10% of the population. Nurse practitioners are trusted providers for people with rare diseases and their families. On today's podcast, we are joined by nurse practitioners Stephanie Hosley and Alicia Turner, who will be discussing factors influencing the care of people who are living with rare diseases, clinical examples, and practical resources. Dr. Stephanie Hosley is an assistant clinical professor at the Ohio State University College of Nursing. She is currently the specialty track director of the Pediatric Nurse Practitioner Program. She's practiced as a nurse practitioner in the central Ohio area for 25 years. Dr. Hosley currently practices with a complex healthcare clinic that serves as a medical home for children with multiple chronic conditions, including a neurodevelopmental disorder, She also works with the Interdisciplinary Cerebral Palsy Team at Nationwide Children's Hospital and provides school-based care to medically complex children in the local school district. Dr. Hosley is the College of Nursing faculty representative for the Ohio State University Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities Interdisciplinary Training Program. Alicia Turner is a nurse practitioner and assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. She has been faculty of the Division of Molecular and Human Genetics since 2017. Alicia's career is devoted to caring for individuals with rare diseases, including the management of new treatments for disorders. She is an investigator on several clinical trials for treatments of rare genetic diseases. Alicia is committed to providing the best possible care for individuals with rare diseases and passionate about increasing knowledge in the community. It is my pleasure to welcome our experts.
1: Thank you so much, Patty, for that introduction. This is Alicia Turner here, and I'm really excited about talking about rare disease. What is rare disease? In the US, a rare disease is defined as a disease or a condition that affects fewer than 200,000 Americans. As you can see, that's a relatively large number. 70 to 75% of rare diseases start in childhood, and 30% of affected children don't live past the age of five. Up to 80% of rare diseases are genetic disorders, and that's my area of expertise. In the community, you may also see these types of disorders. Cystic fibrosis, Down syndrome, sickle cell anemia, all of these common diagnoses are also seen in the community by nurse practitioners every day. 90% of known rare diseases do not have an FDA approved treatment yet. So we can see that there's really a lot of patients out there that don't have any options in terms of medical care when they have rare diseases. going to turn it over to Stephanie, who's going to talk about the burden of these diseases. Thanks, Alicia. My name is Stephanie
2: Hosley, and I want to pick it up where she left off with the burden of disease. we think about the cost of treating a rare disease, it can range from less than $6,000 per year to sometimes over $500,000 per year per patient. In 2019, the average cost for an orphan treatment was about $32,000. If we consider the top drivers for excess medical cost, they are the hospital inpatient care, prescription medication. The top indirect cost categories are labor market productivity losses due to absenteeism, presenteeism, and early retirement. Think about managing the care of a child with a rare condition. Their work schedule and their work attendance is and can be affected. Although our pediatric population with complex medical needs, including children with rare diseases, is less than about 20%, the cost of caring for these children makes up the majority of our health care spending for children. Non-medical costs up to $73 billion are paid on daily care. What happens when these kids can't go to traditional child care? What happens when they need additional nursing in school? There's a cost to that care, to necessary home modification. If they are non-ambulatory or need assistance, that means there's a ramp that needs to be paid for. If there's a lift involved, that needs to be paid for. And that special equipment is not always covered by insurance. What about the cost of special education? They need additional assistance and aid to attend school. They're therapists. There's another cost there. All of these costs represent the largest burden on the families with a loved one affected by rare disease. Let's get back to why we're here today, educating our peers, educating other nurse practitioners. Why is it such a challenge for us when they present to our office? Sometimes this information is not part of our curriculum. It's not that we don't care. It's not that there are not clinical guidelines that exist. It's the fact that we need to do a better job at incorporating these types of things into our curriculum and then independently we're always students, right? We need to take the time to utilize the resources are out there and increase our own knowledge base, just like you're doing today. It's important when we think about treating children and adults with rare disease that many times the individual symptoms are treated but not the entire disease. We may treat. Reflux. A neurologist may treat seizures, but who is providing that big picture care, that big perspective care? Primary care nurse practitioners are capable of caring for these patients in a primary care office, not to manage every little thing. There are some things that the specialists are needed for. This is a team effort, but you as a nurse practitioner, can provide primary care. It's also important that we remember our role in recognizing some of the symptoms. Delayed diagnosis of a rare disease varies from months to decades, with the average being about four to five years. As nurse practitioners, we don't have to know everything, but we know what we don't know. And when something's not right, it's our job to look at those symptoms and contact somebody who does. Someone like our counterparts, like Alicia. We can call them, we can get their input. We can ask them what they suggest until we get this patient to them. It's also important in addition to the economic costs, the financial costs, that we recognize the emotional burden on this family. Sometimes just not knowing what's coming next, what's going on with their child. They're not feeling certain about anything that's going on around them. And if we can assist with that emotional burden just by doing our job the way that we know how to do our job, by picking up on those things, those parts of the puzzle that just aren't right. And Alicia is going to give us an example of one of those puzzles.
1: Thanks so much, Stephanie. And I really enjoy when other nurse practitioners in the community feel comfortable enough to reach out and ask me questions or even send a patient to me or inquire if they need to send a patient. I really think it's so important. We know our limitations. We know what we don't know. We know what we know and we're confident in that. And we provide great care to our patients. So I'd love to give you an example of a patient that I see in my clinic that suffered in the process of a 12-year diagnostic odyssey, where, like you had mentioned, there was just a constellation of findings. Many providers saw the patient, but it was hard for each individual provider to step back and look at all of the findings on this patient and think maybe there was something else going on. So my patient was a 12-year-old male who came in to see me after being diagnosed with something called Hunter syndrome. Hunter syndrome is a lysosomal storage disorder, which is usually obvious around two to four years of age. This patient obviously had gotten much further at 12 years of age. When I saw him, it was pretty clear to me he had all of the characteristic findings of a child with Hunter syndrome. However, he had been treated for each individual finding on its own, and no one took the time to really step back. Or maybe they were nervous about offending the parent, making a mistake, putting in a referral that maybe wasn't necessary. And I want to encourage everyone not to feel that way. When you have a patient who you just don't know what's going on, it does not hurt to reach out to um somebody who specializes in rare disease, somebody who specializes in genetics, and get their opinion on your patient. This 12-year-old had multiple procedures. He had hearing aids and tubes in his ears for hearing loss and chronic otitis. He had a shunt placed for hydrocephalus. He had cardiac disease and valvular disease. He had developmental delay, and he was in a special program at school because he had always had some behavioral concerns as well. The parents were amazing parents and always took the time to bring him to every single appointment. They knew something was different about their child, but they were going from specialist to specialist, and no one had raised a concern that something Else could be going on other than the individual problems that were being treated. As you can imagine and as Stephanie touched on, this created a significant emotional burden on the family. It was difficult to take him to all the appointments. Watching your child going through painful procedures can be very difficult and it also took a financial toll on the family it's very difficult to be taking children to all these appointments and taking time off of work for procedures. You don't know what the recovery time will look like. And if you don't have a diagnosis and expectations, you really don't know what may be next for your child. The thing that really was difficult for me seeing this patient at 12 years old was that there's treatment available. And had I had seen him when he was four years old, or two years old, there would have been a whole different outcome for the patient. So this gives us an opportunity to really sit back and think, what can we do as nurse practitioners, whether you're in rare disease like me or you're out in the community, to get these patients to the specialists they need to, get to, to get them to genetics, to get them to a rare disease specialist. And with talking about treatment, and what could have gone differently for this patient, I'd like to transition into the Orphan Drug Act, because a lot of these tr- disorders do have treatments available, and some of them do not. The Orphan Drug Act was an act that was put forward by the Department of Health and Human Services and the FDA in order to get more involvement from rare disease pharmaceutical companies and other pharmaceutical companies, an incentive for them to develop these new drugs for rare disorders. This was passed all the way back in 1983. And since then, there's been quite a few new drugs for rare disorders, but we're still in a deficit overall on options to treat these disorders. Orphan Drug Act helped give grants to pharmaceutical companies that otherwise wouldn't have had the bandwidth or finances to develop a drug for these rare disorders. These rare disorders, as we know, may have less patients available to go through a clinical trial. If you think about hypertension or diabetes or any of the more common health issues people face, it's easy for us to pool a large group of individuals to be in clinical trials. And we know when this drug gets to market, there'll be a large population of individuals using the drug. Unfortunately, rare disease is completely different. You may have difficulty recruiting patients. As we mentioned, unfortunately, a lot of these patients don't have a very long lifespan. So keeping them well during the trial and getting good data from the trial can be difficult. And then if you're developing a drug, when it gets to market, can you recoup the costs of really making this drug available to the public? How many people will use it? So the Orphan Drug Act helped bring awareness to this issue. And I think we've seen some development and there's a lot of clinical trials going on right now for rare disease. But when I really step back and look at it, there's so much more we could be doing. And with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Stephanie who has more clinical examples of primary care and pediatric care to share with us. Thanks, Alicia. Let's
2: think about how we as primary care MPs can help with families who are transitioning from pediatric care to adult care. We know for neurotypical kiddos without any medical challenges at all, it can be difficult to transition from a pediatric office to an adult office. We know for a child without any complex medical conditions that transitioning from the pediatric office to an adult office can be challenging for them. Now imagine your family of a child with a rare disease. Let's pretend for a moment. We'll name our child Liam. Liam is 17. And he was born with arthrogryposis multiplex congenita. That means that Liam was born with contractures to multiple parts of his body. He's required numerous surgeries over the years. He required a surgery to release his thumb from his palm so that he could move his hands. He required a tendon release so that he could move his feet. He has ongoing chronic respiratory challenges and has required a tracheostomy and a ventilator. Liam and his family have had a fantastic team led by their primary care nurse practitioner in their pediatric office. As all great PNPs do, they began the process of transition in his early teens so that by the time he reached the age of seventeen, the P and P and Liam's family had already discussed the paperwork needed to establish guardianship. They had started to make referrals to the adult providers to the pulmonologist, to the orthopedist, to therapist, so that Liam's family had an opportunity to establish care with these providers before they had to leave the comfort of their pediatric office. If we wait until we are approaching the point where they can no longer be seen in our office, we remove that safety net to assist the family with that transition. Again, remember that child with complex medical needs. It's not just you. A typical child may just have the PCP. Maybe they have some allergies and they have an allergist this family spends enough time in managing the care of this child that it could qualify for the same amount of time of a part-time job they have to coordinate specialists the pulmonologist ear nose and throat orthopedics neurology it's not just school it's not just one bus driver it's not just one teacher they are staying in contact with the bus driver the bus aide, the primary teacher, all of the therapists, their one-to-one nurse at the school, the school nurse, the special education director, and so on. So just expecting a family to make these appointments and transition without any support is not realistic, and we're not really doing our job as their primary care MP to help them. We'll talk a little bit later about the role of perhaps the community health care worker, social workers, care coordinators in this care as well, because we don't expect that you have time to manage all of this, but we do want you to assist the family because you're their team. What if it's a new patient that presents to your practice and they have an existing rare disease that you're not familiar with? Again, don't forget, we have Alicia and our partners in genetics that can assist us. We can talk to the care coordinator or their developmental disabilities caseworker in whatever county or state you reside in. There are our resources out there for them. Don't forget the stress that's placed on this family. We talked about the economic burden we know the relationship stress that may exist there. And although there is our Family and Medical Leave Act to care for family members, this is not always paid. So just because they can take the time off work doesn't mean they can afford to take the time off work to manage all of this care. Let's go back to Alicia and start to talk about some more of these resources.
1: Thanks, Stephanie. And So far, we've talked about rare diseases, the challenges we have diagnosing and treating them, the implications on the families and patients, and what type of patients we may see in our practice, whether it be primary care or specialty care. So now what? I want to share some resources for you that you can use in your own practice, not only for you, but also to share with patients and families as you see these patients in your community or in your office. In terms of providers, there are some great resources out there for rare disease and for genetic disease. There's a service called Gene Reviews, which breaks down every genetic diagnosis you could imagine for a provider, including diagnostic testing that would need to be ordered, how it's inherited, what you would find phenotypically or on exam with the patient, and also gives you many options of articles to look up in regards to the diagnosis. I use it in my own practice quite a bit, and I encourage others to look at this site, and I share it with primary care all the time when they get a new diagnosis of their patient they see in clinic and they want to know more. There's also GARD, the NIH Genetic and Rare Disease Information Center, it's similar to Gene Reviews and is a great resource for providers when they are taking care of patients with rare and genetic diagnosis. In terms of family and provider support, it really depends on your patient's diagnosis. One of the greatest advocates for rare disease is NORD. NORD's mission is to improve the health and well being of people with rare diseases by driving advances in care research and policy. NORD really wants to make these rare diseases more front and center and bring awareness to providers, to the community, to everybody involved with these patients so that we can really drive forward the care and provide better care to these patients. There's been such a deficit for so long. So I encourage families to link up with NORD often because they do provide some financial resources for patients as well as support groups and other informational sessions that are really helpful for patients and families when they are feeling isolated in their diagnosis. Some other disease specific examples I have, foundations such as the OI Foundation for Osteogenesis Imperfecta, where you break your bones quite easily. They not only have support groups They have informational brochures for providers and families that are so helpful for everyone involved and backed by research and providers help write them. The MPS Society, which helps bring families together who have lysosomal storage disorders called mucopolysaccharidosis. They really have great events for patients and they help drive forward research and fund research since we have such a lack of funding in these situations. I think with all of this talk on resources, we can't escape the importance of collaboration between primary care and specialty care, such as Stephanie. So I'll pass it back to Stephanie, and she can talk more about the excellent resources that are provided in the community and in pediatric offices to these patients. Thanks, Alicia.
2: We all know the benefit of diversity of thought and interdisciplinary care. It's important to remember this, especially for these children with rare diseases. Again, they see multiple specialists and it's not your job to answer every question that they have. There are some questions that may need to go to the specialist, but there are other questions that you can handle with the right resources, even things like when their report or their visit note comes to you as their PCP. Taking a few minutes to write a couple of notes to record it in your electronic medical record so that the next time they come, you can ask them a follow-up question about, so I saw that you had imaging done or I see that you have a procedure coming up. How are you feeling about that? Making sure that your patients know that you are aware of what's going on with them can be done quite easily. Again, it's not your job to know everything about everything, but we do want to use those resources that are out there. Like Alicia stated, you want to know who's available in your community, who can help bridge that gap when the family is having trouble at school, with their 504 plan addressing their medical needs or addressing their educational needs? Are there care coordinators through their insurance? Do you know the contact numbers for your county's Developmental Disabilities Board? Are there community health workers at your local health department or perhaps even embedded within your healthcare organization? Having these contact numbers at the ready will save you time so that you can continue to support this family while staying on track. Everyone has limited time, but we know that we can do our part in maintaining a good chain of information. There are waivers that are available to the families. You may not know all the differences in all the different waivers, but perhaps their care coordinator does. Waivers may help to pay for some of those costs that we listed before and the family may not be aware of that. If they're in a rural area, they may not be aware of resources to assist with transportation or community resources that might do something as simple as providing the family with an outlet for adjusted sports or perhaps for resources to help them to engage in the community. Those small things can be a big thing for these families. So just remembering to jot those things down when you have an opportunity. Also remembering at the end of your wealth child visits to remind them when to use the emergency department and when not to, that you may not know every answer to every question, but you may help them to discern when an emergency department visit is needed. Communication, communication, communication. Keeping that line of communication open with your patients and your community will go a long way in assisting these families. I'm going to turn it back over to Alicia to talk about patient registries and clinical trials.
1: Thanks, Stephanie. Patient registries and clinical trials are really something that's dear to me as a lot of my patients may have a diagnosis that there is no available therapy yet. When there are not available therapies, there are often clinical trials going on for a diagnosis that your patient may be eligible for. Patient registries also fall under clinical trials as often these are registries patients become a part of and they collect data about a patient and their diagnosis in order to eventually get a clinical trial for some sort of therapeutic drug or other intervention going. Clinical trials are so important in my field and all of our fields, because really that's how any drug gets to market. We really need to study drugs and have a thorough clinical trial in order to have good results and know that the drugs we are bringing to market are safe and effective. Clinical trials have driven forward all of the therapies that I use, and I usually do check these clinical trials every three to four months in order to make sure I'm up on the latest ones. Clinicaltrials.gov is an accessible site for not only a provider, but also families and patients to type in the diagnosis that they have and are interested in seeking treatment for and see what's going on, not only in the United States, but often around the world. These clinical trials often have funding for patients to travel and be a part of them, even if they are not within your city or state. So I think if you're talking about rare disease or treating rare disease, it's impossible to escape the topic of clinical trials. These diagnoses were neglected for so long because there just wasn't enough interest, and now it really is changing. In my department, we've gone from having a handful of drugs we use and other therapeutics that we use to running various studies all the time and new clinical trials and offers for new clinical trials coming in every week, every month. So I think it's really important for all of us to familiarize ourselves with clinicaltrials.gov so we know what's going on in terms of research, if we ever need to point our patients in the right direction, or if they've run out of resources and wanna know, is there anything else I can do? And on the topic of rare disorders and disorders that lack treatment, I really wanted to touch on something that has been coming to the forefront in not only genetic care, but also primary care, and it's genetic testing. I'm familiar with genetic testing and. Do this on a regular basis but you may say i work in a pediatrician's office or i'm in primary care i don't have that much experience with genetic testing and i don't feel comfortable with that we really want to emphasize that it's important to know what you're testing for and why and choosing the right test is really important there's a lot of buzz about new techniques and new types of genetic testing And there's a lot more availability in the general public to get testing, whether it be Ancestry.com or now 23andMe is running various types of disease state testing. Direct-to-consumer testing is something that's evolving very quickly. On that topic, a lot of times we hear a buzz about next-generation sequencing It's a new technology that's used for DNA and RNA sequences and variant detection. When I say variant, I mean a mutation in your genes. We go back and forth between that terminology because mutation has a negative connotation, and so variant is often used in conjunction with that or as opposed to mutation. Next-generation sequencing can sequence hundreds and thousands of genes or a whole genome in a very short period of time. Now with this great opportunity is also a great responsibility. Things like next generation sequencing and direct to consumer testing all have implications. They're exciting and everyone is wanting to know how can we use this to help our patients and and when is this appropriate? Really in terms of genetic testing, You may not do something like a whole exome sequencing in your office, and that's okay. But you may have a patient come to you that says, my mother had breast cancer. My sister has breast cancer. My grandmother had breast cancer. I want to be tested for BRCA1 and BRCA2. I want to know, is this a risk for me? And when it becomes important to seek genetic specialists or rare disease specialists, is when you're not familiar with testing and you may say, okay, I'll order those tests for you, but there's a whole panel for breast cancer that you may leave out some of the genes. So I encourage if you're running testing, you get with a genetic professional or refer to a genetic specialist so these people can get the best care possible. Really, the involvement of testing has gone from looking at just how many chromosomes we have. Do you have the right amount? Are they paired correctly? To looking at the whole exome and your entire genetic code. And there's tests in between. You can run panels for things that you're suspecting a patient has. If you think that they have OI or osteogenesis imperfector, some other bone disease, you can do a bone fragility panel. So it really will vary between practices, what you do and who you refer to, but knowing a little bit about this is really important. You may get a patient that comes back to you with a new diagnosis and you look at their genetic testing and you don't know what it means. Knowing who you can refer to is really important and who to ask questions to is really important as well. I'll give you an example of a 25 year old that I take care of that has something called Fabry disease. He had symptoms of this disorder all throughout his childhood and adolescence. He had something very common in this diagnosis, which is chronic pain. His hands and feet would burn and he would get episodes that are exacerbated by heat or stress. He had seen different specialists, and nobody really had an idea of what could be going on with his pain. He was given symptomatic care, which really didn't always take away his pain. He went and tried holistic methods. He traveled for stem cell injections that never really helped as well, until finally he developed end-stage renal disease. The nephrologist was really puzzled by what could be going on and took a biopsy of his kidney. At that time, it was suspicious for Fabry disease. The provider in nephrology was able to order the initial testing for Fabry disease. So by the time the patient came to me, we had the diagnosis. This is an example of appropriate use of genetic testing. If you have a significant suspicion of a very specific disease and you want to run the testing, or if you feel like it's something you've done before and many nephrologists have for this condition, then it's appropriate and we can partner together to get a patient diagnosed. It was just a great example of working hand-to-hand with a community provider to get the patient diagnosed and seen quicker and started on the available therapy. Now, if this patient had been seen earlier by somebody in genetics, we could have probably diagnosed him earlier and and stopped the pain from progressing so far. So it's just another great example of why, if your patient has something that you don't know what is going on, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to make those referrals. We would rather get a referral and rule out everything and it be a false alarm then miss a chance to really change somebody's life with the diagnosis. And with diagnosis being discussed, I wanted to touch on newborn screening, which is something that is just so important to the health of our children and the health of our newborns by screening for these type of disorders very early on in life. Most people are familiar with the newborn screen or some people used to call this the PKU test where you do a heel stick on an infant and collect blood spots on a piece of paper. This is a way to screen for diagnosis including genetic diagnosis that may impact the newborn very early on in life. There's something called the recommended uniform screening protocol that is a suggestion of what you should include on the newborn screen, but this does vary state by state. It allows for earlier diagnosis of infants with genetic or rare disorders and earlier treatment. What does that mean for our patients? That means we can get their disease under control much earlier. We can begin screening for some of the complications of the disorder much earlier, And really, we can change the trajectory of these patients' lives. And with that, Stephanie has a lot of insight on what that means for patients in pediatric practice. Thanks,
2: Alicia. From the primary care side, it's important for us to follow up on newborn screenings and make those referrals back to the appropriate specialist once the results are received. Again, it's that prompt follow-through that assists us in making an early diagnosis and reducing not only the stress of the families, but improving the outcomes for the patients. It's also important to follow up on those referrals and make certain that the newborn screens do not get lost in the transition if they did not begin in your office. We know that the processes vary from state to state, so it's important to determine what that process looks like in your state, but to ensure that we don't assume that the previous provider followed through on the newborn screening and that we take the time during that initial visit to discuss the results when they are available and that we're available to answer questions. I'm gonna turn it back over to Alicia as we begin to wrap up our discussion for today.
1: So when we're thinking about closing up the topic, You may think, well, what does the future hold for rare diseases and genetic diseases? There are so many new opportunities coming up to treat and diagnose these patients. One of these is machine learning, which has been applied to databases and electronic medical records in order to screen many charts at one time to see if they have constellation of findings that may be consistent with a certain diagnosis. This is already being used, believe it or not, in some specific healthcare facilities, and it is being used in order to try to get these keywords and diagnose patients with rare disorders that maybe there's no explanation for their symptoms. There's ethical concerns about this, of course, when medical records are being accessed and Some people are not happy to share this information with an applied learning device, which is totally understandable. So moving forward with things like machine learning may give us opportunity for diagnosis when not every specialist is stepping back and looking at each individual symptom a patient has and attributing it to a much larger picture. The ENT may only have time to see a patient and make sure their tubes are functioning correctly and they're hearing well. and They may not be touching on their shunt or their gait or other issues that are going on with them because as providers, we have a job to do. And if we were trying to diagnose every patient with a rare disorder, if they had a constellation of findings, it would be very time consuming. So We understand that providers are really working in their scope, working in their specialty, and there may be opportunity in this. Another thing for the future is nurse practitioners and genetics. There is such a deficit in the United States of geneticists. There are some cities and states that are just a medical desert in terms of genetic care. There are patients who travel to see me and my counterparts from states all around the United States. So Nurse practitioners can really fill this gap in genetics. And I'm excited as more and more nurse practitioners become interested in the field of genetics, as more and more opportunities come along for nurse practitioners in genetics. Conferences such as the Clinical Genetics Advanced Provider Conference come along, and there are certifications for nurse practitioners in genetics. We really can bridge this gap in rare and genetic disease, whether we're working in genetics specifically or in primary care. And we are all a team. We all want to do what's best for our patients. We all want our patients to have excellent care and to get to all the right specialists. So I'll let Stephanie speak on the importance of the team as we close out.
2: Thanks, Alicia. Again, remember, this is a team effort. We do not expect you to know everything there is to know about a rare disease, but we do expect that as an NP, we know that you are more than capable of managing the primary care of this child. Think about it. A child with a rare disease comes in for their annual well visit. You go through all of the same things that you usually do. We talk about diet. How is it going? No, you may not know the correct rate that their G-tube feeds should run at, but you can look at their weight, make sure that they're trending appropriately, make sure they're not having any problems with frequent choking or gagging, and then make sure that they are in fact following up with the dietician or the specialist who is managing the G-tube feeds. You move on to sleep. No, you may not be able to manage the vent settings in the primary care office, but you can talk to them about sleep hygiene. How many hours of sleep are they getting? And you can use your resources to determine if sleep disturbance is part of that diagnosis. And then you can make a referral to your local pulmonologist for a sleep study or to the sleep clinic, depending upon where you are at. You might not manage spasticity. However, You can talk to them about pain and movement and activity and make that referral to the physiatrist who may help in managing tone management. And you may not know how to manage an IEP, but you're going to talk about development that day and how is school going. And if there are problems, it's not within your scope to fix all of those, but you can definitely make a referral to the local advocate at your local board of education. As a team, we can help these patients with rare diseases and their families. We can try to do what we can to reduce the burden of stress. We can be mindful stewards of the resources by making the appropriate referrals and the follow through and communicating with our team members. You can do this. Alicia and I want to take the time today to thank AANP for having us here today and allowing us to talk with you. And we want to thank you for joining us to learn more about the care of patients with rare disease. This was the first step in helping to care for them, and we know you will continue on to do it well.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie and Alicia, for this interesting and informative podcast. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AANP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice, and the AANP CE Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for NPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AANP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. You may earn CE credit for this podcast by completing the post-test and evaluation by logging into the AANP CE Center at aanp.org slash cecenter and entering the participation code Disease 24 That's all one word, Disease 24 Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back frequently for new episodes. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.